Hello, you're listening to FabRadioInternational.com, or possibly you're listening to the Starburst Family Podcast. I'm Team Bookworm, and my name is Ed Fortune. I'm here with... And in for Hayes, we've got a really special show coming up today. So be ready on social media to comment, tweet us. Uh, we are Radio Bookworm on Facebook, Radio Bookworm on Twitter. We're on Fab Radio International, and of course you can catch us up on iTunes and you can subscribe and all those wonderful things you can do we're also on Tumblr uh, but yes very exciting show today uh, the team was at Lit Edge um, Edge Lit Edge Lit oh my god Edge Lit <laughs> god yes fail um, and we've got loads of really interesting um, interviews coming up so we're going to hand over to producer Al and Ed Fortune in the past Dun dun dun! Tells in the studio, which is weird and doesn't quite work. Hello! Hello, hello, us in the future. That's <laughs> really strange. Um, so we're at Edge Late, um, and we are here with producer Al. Hello! Uh, and we have Jonathan Green. Hello! And we have Adrian Tchaikovsky. Hello! And we also have members of the public. Hello! <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to pretend it's thousands, but let's be honest, there's like six. I can't count. There could be a very attentive thousand who just don't want to. Yeah, a very, very quiet recording. thousand. It's a handful of people because, let's be honest, we have spent the entire day raving about Brooks and we're all a bit tiddly pom. <laughs> um, and we're all a bit tired. But for some reason, we're right at the end of the schedule because that's where you put a podcast. <laughs> so, um, we're going to. So, the, the bookworm is in association with Starburst magazine and is also in association with Fab Radio International. And yes, I do have to say it that way. Um, <laughs> embrace the alternative, boys and girls. Uh, the bookworm can be found on social media. We are on Twitter as Radio Bookworm. We're on Facebook as Radio Bookworm. We're on Tumblr as Radio Bookworm. You see what we've done there. We're on Mixcloud as Radio Bookworm. And we're on iTunes as a random string of numbers that no one can understand. <laughs> But you can find us via the Starburst magazine website anyway. Uh, we also make a standard lame joke about being able to contact us by Owl and Raven, but the OSPCA, the OSPCA have asked us to stop. Would it not be the RSPB? Possibly. As well. As well, As well sorry. We're getting uh, the pedantry in there early. <laughs> and the Royal Society for Protection of Magical Creatures and ah, Fictional okay. Creatures as well. Yes, okay. uh, not that we're saying that owls are fictional, but you know what we're saying. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> <Book> news. <laughs> so, uh, Ray Bradbury's home has uh, been turned into bookends. So I hear. Um, the, the Fahrenheit 451 of a house didn't burn down, but when he died, um, the short as we understand it, is uh, another developer looked at his house and went, this is a historic site, I'm going to bulldoze it and build something more interesting. <laughs> as you do. Um, so it's been bulldozed and <coughs> nerds were outraged because they couldn't afford to buy the house. Um, and instead, a very nice charity organisation that called the Reuse People of America have turned his bits of his home in, we've got no evidence that it is bits of his home, but let's assume it is. <laughs> you know, is it a bit like someone just trying to flog you a piece of concrete, saying it's part of the Berlin Wall? <laughs> I've got one of those. I, I have. But I collected it from the Berlin Wall. Me too. So, yeah. <laughs> so I, I did meet somebody at another event who was trying to tout pieces of the Wicker Man oh, from God, the movie, yes. and he had what he said was provenance, and he had photographs and things, but it was photographs 
from the movie. And then he had some wood. <laughs> I, I, I actually have a chip of Wickerman B, because there were two Wickerman. Okay. Um, and they, they did a test run where they burnt it down. That's how you test from the Wicker Man, obviously. So they burnt it down. With or without a policeman. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably without any, you know, animals or policemen inside. Just to see if Just it a would... local community support officer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just to make sure that they didn't ac- accidentally set fire to, you know, the town. You don't uh, upset the RSPCA, do you? <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, or the RSPCA. Oh, squirrel. No squirrels are harmed in the burning of this Wicker Man. <laughs> um, but those stumps were there for years and nerds used to go up and, and chip off a bit and a friend of mine um, did give me a bit as a present which is you know the most awesome and yet cheapest <laughs> received here was a photo of some burnt stumps gee thanks uh, and it's a bit of the Wicker Man but it's a bit of the not the Wicker Man but anyway, we've got book news <laughs> J.L. Totlin was in the news again uh, when what's he done now? <laughs> I thought he meant bookends uh, he's not the intended the begins, that's wrong. J.R. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Tolkien um, is in the news again uh, as the nineteen fifty seven first edition of The Hobbit will be auctioned at Sotheby's on just 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 last month uh, and went for one hundred and thirty seven thousand pounds. Blimey. Is that the one before they removed all the rude words? Yes. Well, apparently. <laughs> it's pride of place on my bookshelf. Apparently, in Sotheby's, it's got an ins- inscription in, on, on, inside it. And Sotheby's were like, oh, it's clearly Tangwall. It's got to be Elvish. <laughs> uh, it turned out to be Old English. Uh, <laughs> so it's an all in Sotheby's, the, the place that checks antiquity could, anyway. Uh, that was almost a libel. A shopping list or something. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. It was possibly. Maybe an elf. Do elves have shopping lists? I'm sure if Tolkien was going to write a shopping list, he'd write it in Old English. Because an elvish shopping list would be Lambas. Lambas. More Lambas. More Lambas. New Harpstring. New Harpstring. <laughs> Staring moodily in the sky. Conditioner. Conditioner. <laughs> Lots of conditioner. <laughs> um. Oh, it's the bit where it's the bit in the news section where we talk about the Hugos. Hey. Yay. Yay! Yeah, another random person's appeared. Come in, come in. You mentioned Hugos, no. and they're gone. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't you? So the Hugo saga is about best saga this time round. Um, uh. We we've been avoiding talking about uh, estranged animals and their moods on the show for some time um, <laughs> because it's stopped being funny, uh, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, but the Hugo saga is about best saga. So what they're they're, they're trying to do is they're, they're trying to propose uh, that you have a saga section, so you can have like you know if you're if you're for example Adrian if your series is ten novels long, for example, for example, <laughs> um, you can have the entire work nominated. Would that be if you'd like, I don't know, something called the Wheel of Time that's a million words long? Would that count? Well, I'm just, I'm wondering if this kind of a moral panic that's that kind of erupted after the Wheel of Time ended up on the shortlist last time. It, it's an it, it's an exact response. Um, I mean, I, I okay. I mean, I've got a ten book series. I mean, Jonathan's got an eight book series. I know that. I I kind of think it would be a terrible idea. It would be an award for which the number of people eligible in any given year would be minuscule. And already, by definition, really very successful authors. Thank you. <laughs> I'll take that. It's, it's, it's an interesting point, though I would argue that you could also say that if it was a series of franchise fiction, because multiple authors are allowed, ah. it could also be turned into a franchise fiction award. So, for example, The Horus Heresy. For example, Which the is, what, Heresy. 32 books long now or something. <laughs> but it's one of, I mean, again, franchise fiction essentially comes pre-popularised. That's true. I mean, if you're going to start looking at new award categories, I'm not sure that rewarding people who already have 
an edge in the market is necessarily the way to go. I mean, the thing they aren't doing, because they almost did this, is they almost got rid of one of the novella types, Noveletto and Noveletto, which is ridiculous because you want more short story awards, not less. You want as many entry-level, debut-level awards in your, your kind of your person. I think if it's someone like the Hugos, if someone is looking like they're doing really well, but they're just starting out, you want an opportunity for them to get there. And short fiction and novellas and novelettes are traditionally the place where you find new authors. That I, I must admit, I think I would... The length, the length categories haven't changed in an awfully long time, and they're very screwy. I mean, the novel length is 40,000 up. That's quite short. It's well, it, from, by modern standards, it's enormous. It's 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 absurdly short. No one is really writing a novel of forty thousand. If someone put out a work of forty thousand words, I don't think it would ever win the Hugo's purely because it would look like a pamphlet compared to everything else. Just just for our listeners, should we? How long is a novelette? What are we talking here? Um, it sounds like a, a twelve, a, an twelve and a half. To, <laughs> it sounds just <laughs> yeah. It's something like twelve. A moist and all that. It's something like twelve to fifteen. Uh, twelve to completing your saga. Why go around this moist and all that? You have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I mean, like, my next Kickstarter. <laughs> it would be nice to see more short fiction awards, but it, I mean, they they need to look at the lengths because frankly writing habits have changed beyond all recognition from the when they were first set down well I mean I, I, I've said this before on the show but I, I think the Hugo Awards needs to uh, sorry the World Science Fiction Association Society what have you um, need to basically <coughs> mature um, and it's sort of quite a mature audience but it needs to adapt and change uh, otherwise it's going to become more increasingly irrelevant but that's a that's a longer conversation that is, you know, I, I think the point for me at the moment is if we get one in Helsinki, then Worldcon looks like it's going to become properly international because it'll be Helsinki, mm. then it'll be back in America, then it'll be in Dublin, mm-hmm. then it'll be two years later, it'll be in France, and it, that'd be amazing. Every other year, it's somewhere that's not America. <laughs> that's progress, sadly. I can um, imagine a lot of Australian and other <laughs> listeners from most of the rest of the world saying, hold on. This well, is New Zealand bidding for 2024 or something? 2023. So it's, 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 it's by complete random happenstance, it seems to be the uneven numbers seem to have gotten this thing where it, it looks like it could happen. But because the actual the core audience of Worldcon are conservative with small C, Americans, mm. who are aging, they are less likely to go for something new and radical. Which is the problem with Worldcon? Which is a real pity because I mean, who doesn't want a Hugo Award? It looks cool. It's a rocket ship. Um, <laughs> the public are are nodding sagely at the side of us about their saga implications. Would anybody like to comment? It seems unfair to give someone, as you said, that's already successful, um, a massive load of extra recognition. Surely, if your books were that good, you'd pick up a Hugo or another award along the way. Yeah. There is a brief pause, gentlemen, listeners. We moved the one microphone uh, <laughs> uh, around the studio because we are indeed a high, high quality, high tech, high quality station. Jo- I was saying, Jojo and Martin really liked our microphone. Yeah, did. You did. It's a very spiffy, high tech looking microphone. It is. Good news. Good news. It also, if it falls off, it rolls, which is <laughs> um, Octopus commissioned animatronic for a robot book. Uh, Animatronic is a singer in the Scissor Sisters. Uh, her name is Anna. It's her name is Matronic. Um, <laughs> she's a, a lifelong robot fanatic. You don't say. <laughs> really? 
Um, Hannah Niles, who is lifelong or lifelike? Lifelike. <laughs> <laughs> lifelike animal. She has a tattoo, doesn't she, on her arm that Does makes she? it look cybernetic. I think that's the qualification here, to be honest. Well, you can. I mean, in the modern obviously, age, I've not spoken to her personally about her love of robots. But um, in the modern age, you can be a really rubbish cyborg. Um, I had I had a shot of my life years ago when I discovered that a friend of mine had a, a heart monitor actually inserted inside them. I discovered this by Bluetoothing things in the room and realizing she was on Bluetooth. And I was no. just like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> quite quite terrified. The Spotify um, playlist and he comes with <laughs> a chest. But um, yes, <laughs> sorry. Um, she is uh, sorry animatronic who may or may not be a rubbish cyborg. Um, uh, is has got a book coming out called Robot Takeover 100 Iconic Robots of Myth Popular Culture in Real Life um, it's coming out in cool. September it looks kind of cool, it's one of those we mention it because it's one of those interesting sci-fi multimedia crossover You know, she's in Sisters Sisters more people than your average sci-fi audience will buy it um, the people have won the 2015 Risling Awards the people, all of them <laughs> well, well some people, uh, namely Marge Simon um, for her poem uh, Shutdown uh, which is a short poem and the long poem A uh, Hundred Reasons to Have Sex with an Alien by F.J. Bergman um, won the Risling Awards which are for poetry um, and I understand there's an expansion of his short poem Five Reasons to Have Sex with an Alien <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we can, That was book news That is book news The Risling Awards are oh, book news um, Congratulations to the winners <laughs> Congratulations. And, and now I know there's that award. Right? <laughs> it's next weekend sorted. Quick, quick write some, some sci-fi poetry. It's, it's great, this show, because I didn't know that existed until yeah. I wrote it down. Um, <laughs> it is a real award. I didn't make that up, by the way. Um, talking of awards, uh, the 2015 World Fantasy Life Achievement Awards uh, went to Sherry S. Tepper and Ramsey Campbell. Cool. Uh, so when you asked in the quiz whether Ramsey Campbell was a made-up name, that was in fact... No, 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 I knew. Someone else was like, is that a made-up name? And I was like, no, they, they won a World Fantasy Award. Mm-hmm. And I got stared at, and then I had to explain the Cthulhu mythos, okay. which is weird. Anyway, oh, yes, actually, I had a great quiz. We've, anyway. We'll talk um, about that momentarily. Book news! <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Orbit host a book workshop. They're doing workshops, which is kind of cool. Um, uh, in July, so very, very soon. By the time you're listening to this, you might just still be able to book. But that's interesting that Orbit specifically have gone out of the way because normally workshops are not organised by publishers. Yeah. Mm, I mean, well, I mean, Orbit, Orbit Glance. There's been a big reshuffle up that way, haven't there? In the in the industry, they've all merged under the Hachette banner, and I mean, what, they're all under one office and one general heading, so. On the subject of uh, of uh, Hachette, um, by the by, we are still accepting um, uh, Hachette and Amazon and Love uh, short stories. Uh, we occasionally still get them. Uh, this was last year when Amazon and Hachette were having an argument. Uh, we decided to solve this by having uh, opening a competition for uh, love stories between the two and how they may get on. And bury the Hachette. And bury the Hachette. Uh, alas, the only Deep ones... In the Amazon. Deep, deep in the Amazon. <laughs> Alas, the only ones we got we couldn't actually broadcast. We're still waiting for one that we can actually use. 
Um, trade absorbs budget. This is basically an excuse for us to complain about the budget. Uh, and I'm I, I've, I've had a lovely, lovely day at Edgelet. It's been absolutely fantastic. I don't think I can. So let's move on. Politicians. Politicians. Ooh. Okay. Anyway, Politicians. Ooh. Um, oh God! Especially. Sorry. This is my hi hat. There was that uh, the, the new education secretary talking about children who choose a career in the arts are disadvantaging themselves. Oh, well... Uh, so you were having a nice day. <laughs> oh, dear. They may have been children who didn't go to Eton with disadvantages in themselves. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Oh, there we go. Fun- fundamental misunderstanding about how art works. Yes. Excellent. That's who you want, Minnie. One you? of my favourite quotes, I've got to remember it now, is, I think it's, imagination is more important than knowledge. And the best thing is, it's by Albert Einstein. <laughs> so there's somebody who understood the importance of creativity. Um, every, single, every single scientist... I. Uh, Part of my day job, I, I end up talking to a lot of scientists. Uh, every single scientist that I know who is very good, um, and by very good I mean, you know, have a number of awards and have done very well, tend to also have a, a massive fiction habit because, oddly enough, if you take your mind out for a walk, you're more likely. Eric Drexler, the man who turned turned, turned the phrase um, nanotechnology, and this is book relevant because he wrote a book called Nano, which you should read by Drexler. He used to describe the fact that he used to take hallucinogenic substances and then sit on molecules. He would use it to imagine himself sitting on molecules whilst he watched the processes. And this is where he came up with the idea of of nanotechnology. So there we go. Uh, <laughs> I've kind of gone off the topic. Uh, and Book news. Finally... <laughs> Peters, who are the book and furnitures people, and uh, not Blue Peter as I thought initially when I was writing this, um, <laughs> are sponsoring the Comics Laureate. Uh, it's currently Dave Gibbons, uh, because why wouldn't it be? Um, <laughs> Marvellous. I, I love the idea of having a Comics Laureate. Um, I, I've got a distinct feeling that the Comics Laureate people are going to be surprised when they realise how many Scottish and, uh, and, Nor- and North Eastern people produce comics yes we're going to have an awful lot of comics lawyers who come from Scotland because you know we, we came back very recently from Glasgow Comic Con which is a massive Comic Con that no one's heard of so it's the most hipster con ever um, <laughs> but it's full of Scottish people who have basically been producing comic books their entire lives and the thing that you never see at Comic Cons people from the Beano that's true which, which makes still huge which makes perfect sense because they've been producing comics for longer than most mm-hmm. most publishing houses, and they know an awful lot. I mean, loads of the people behind 2000 AD. Well, it used to be DC Thompson. No, it uh, used to be Fleetway. It's been various things, hasn't it? Uh, it used to be Scottish Fleetway. and there's got loads. Pl- Alan Grant, obviously. Gordon Rennie still writing stuff. Various uh, artists who I should know their names, but I apologise. But Jock, uh, for example, Jock, uh, possibly Scottish. Uh, he is new. Um, <laughs> Gordon Rennie's actually listens to the Bookworm family, uh, sorry, the Starburst family podcasts. So, hello, Gordon. Uh, he mostly listens to the slightly ruder one that's on later uh, with the editors of the magazine. And actually, uh, recently, uh, the graphic novel Robbie Burns' Witch Hunter oh, won we're, in we're, various categories, didn't it? So, it, it Gordon, did. Emma Beebe, and also TNN Trevelyan Illustrated. Brilliant book, brilliant. Uh, we'll be back after these messages. FabRadioInternational.com Those hands are playing the strangest musical instrument in the world. The only instrument that is not touched by hand. You ask for it. Oh, and, and we're back. Um, if you were listening to us live, those were a series of adverts. If you're listening to us on the podcast, 
there's been a really awkward pause, a jingle, and I've talked nonsense at you. <laughs> and if you're a regular listener to this show, you're sick of this joke by now, but I'm going to continue to make it until you beg me to stop. Please stop. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we have two wonderful authors with us. Um, and Jonathan Green and Adrian Tchaikovsky. We have two wonderful authors and Jonathan Green. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, we finally have Jonathan Green on the show. Uh, we, 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 we know that many, many other listeners have wanted us to get Jonathan Green on the show. Really? And this is why I made a joke about the Fontenot Stars. Um, oh. <laughs> sorry. That's all right. I'd, I'd actually had somebody this afternoon contact me on Facebook saying, are you John Green? And spelt J-O-N. I'm like, yeah, I am. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, because my daughter wondered if it was you. Okay, she read much of my sort of washy monster time fiction. No, 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 Paper Towns. No, no that's J-O-H-N. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not the one who's had movies made of his books. I've been published 12 years before him. But I'm not bitter about it. <laughs> I'm not, I don't keep going about it. But the thing I actually want to see, because you're, you're, you're better known for uh, your Frank Fancy books. I am. And, and <laughs> the, then the fault in their stars. <laughs> if you want to die of cancer, turn to page 400. Um, oh. Oh. I think that one might go in the head. <laughs> I, I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> I should hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm back <laughs> If you want to be heartbroken, turn to page 400. Um, see, see, I can, I can save it. Um, so, yeah, sorry. Uh, um, so, apart from being uh, confused with someone who runs a vlog, um, what are you currently up to? Um, various projects, as always. Uh, my latest Kickstarter is now running which is to write a new game book, which is a sequel to Alice in Wonderland. How does that work? It works because I think that would be a cool idea. It's the 150th anniversary of the publication of the book. It's, oh. a, it's a classic. Um, I couldn't do any worse than Tim Burton. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, and I just love game books. So if, if I can turn it into a game book, I will. But yeah, it's just something I wanted to try and I thought put a dark twist on it. I mean, obviously Alice is pretty dark in the first place when you look at it. Madness and freaky dreams and things. But it's set a few years after Through the Looking Glass and Alice gets summoned back to Wonderland to, to sort out a few problems. And, Adrian, you're better known for the Shadows of the Apt series. Uh, yep. And that's now finished. <laughs> yep, you wrapped it last year. So, um, and we, we talked about Guns of the Dawn. Uh, very kindly, yes, thank you for that. And we'll, at some point we'll talk to children of time. But what are you up to at the moment? Uh, right now I am writing a what's going to be a new series out. I am trying to coin, coin it as Stone Age The Hunger Games with Shape Changers. It's... I'm sold. <laughs> that's, that's great. Uh, the, the basic content I started off with, first of all I wanted to write a book that was inspired very much by historical times and places that were not medieval Europe in any way, but also I wanted to write a book where everyone in, in the, all of these cultures... Everyone is a shape changer, and I did my normal thing with the way I build worlds. I just kind of extrapolate from yeah, what would that change? What sort of religions and cultures and organisation and attitudes towards life would that produce? And ended up with something I'm kind of quite happy with. So, kind of, kind of something that you both have in common is that you're both gamers. Mm-hmm. Um, how does fantasy gaming? And, and fantasy writing affect each other. I think one one of the one of the hallmarks of of say the last 
uh, 10 years of um, heroic and epic fantasy writing is things are a lot well gritty is the word that generally gets thrown about mm-hmm. I mean that things are much more concerned with morally ambiguous people doing dodgy things for bad reasons with people being unlucky with people being unheroic and most of the writers behind this are former gamers and I think that once you've played through enough role playing game campaigns with the sort of things that people players normally pull I think this is where a lot of this has come from. I think that yeah, you know, once you've been in your party and you know, the rogue has just backstabbed the paladin and run off with all the loot and everything has gone completely to crap, that's grimdark in a nutshell, <laughs> frankly. I, I, I think Adrian's right. There's an element of when you're role-playing, you're acting, and actors always say they'd rather play the villains because they're the interesting characters. Like, I mean, I love Batman. I love the Batman universe, but I think Batman's quite potentially a dull character. He's only so good because he's got villains like the Joker the Riddler and a whole host of others Poison Ivy Catwoman Two-Face and that's, and that's the actors that's what they want to play as those, those meteor roles you think like the original Batman Batman movie Michael Keaton so-so but what everyone remembers is Jack Nicholson as the Joker so I think possibly it's like you say that element in people mm. wanting that, that wish fulfilment you get to be the bad guy without doing it in real life you can still go and be a, a decent human being but you get to indulge that dark side of your personality so, so given the fact that we have um, we, we have so many more gaming addicts, and we have um, a massive rise in the interest in fantasy, uh, what's what's going to happen? What's going to happen with that? Are we going to have more interactive fiction? Are we going to have you know? It, it, are we going to have people wanting to be more involved in fantasy? And how is that going to affect writing? And how is that going to affect the the, the the industry all that surrounds books? Um, I mean, I th- I think. Playing games and especially running games is a very good kind of learning ground for that sort of, sort of creativity you need as a writer. I mean, I, my world building style comes straight out of um, gaming campaigns because you have to build a world that much more watertight if you're going to have players running around in it than if you're you know, simply writing it for the purpose of a single plot in a book. Um, I think that. I don't think you'll ne- you would necessarily get the same out of say a lot of computer gaming because you know, the world is built for you. You, don't, you have far less agency and far less input in what's going on. Frequently, also in the characterization of the character you're playing, and obviously yeah, that's that, that. I guess that's a lot of the gaming that people are used to these days. Yeah, I think um, there's an element as well with with gaming. It's rather like trolling online, in that you can go around, for example. Grand Theft Auto or even Assassin's Creed and you go and try and kill anybody and just see what happens because there's, you haven't got to look anybody in the eye while you're doing it whereas gaming there is a consequence and you've got players who invest in their characters and then to do something that harsh and backstabbing is there's no safe position yeah <laughs> exactly so I think it would make people think twice um, I think in terms of obviously when you have things like Game of Thrones it just brings it to the attention of the populace the wider populace that much more so it gives a new opportunity I think you get a glut of you know all sorts of stuff will come out that isn't so good but I still like to think that the cream rises to the top um, so I think we'll, we'll probably eventually see it there'll be well, people have enough of grimdark and we'll, there'll be a hankering for sort of high fantasy and, and, and morally less ambiguous characters one of the things I have noticed in this it sort of comes out of video games it sort of comes out of role playing mm. and George R. Martin, bless his evil Santa heart, has has kind of embraced it 
in the sense that we we are starting to see the rise of source books. Now, when I was a when I was a kid playing D and D, I felt that reading a source book was incredibly indulgent, incredibly nerdy. Um, and f- for those who don't know what a source book is, it's a book that tells you about the world. There's no plot to it. It just tells you where the pubs are and who the evil kings are and this sort of thing. And it's got all the details in it. But Martin's pro- already produced half uh, a world book source book. He intends to produce another one. He's, he's said publicly several times that he's going to do more. Um, we talked to Peter V. Brett. Peter V. Brett wants to do another uh, a source book as well. Is this where is this where fiction is going, or are we becoming more involved in fantasy to a, at a different level? I, I mean, God alone knows. I'd lo- I'd love to, I'd love to see it become a thing. I mean, I'd love to do a Shadows mm. of the Amped one. Uh, yeah, they, it's one of those. If you do that kind of exhaustive level of world creation, there's always a lot of the world that you just never get onto the page. Yeah. Um, so it would be kind of be kind of nice to be able to say, "Oh, and actually, over here, these guys are doing this," and you know, without <laughs> well, because if you start to try and cram that stuff into the actual narrative, it really, really isn't a good idea. And you can mention something as a throwaway line. You don't even necessarily plan it particularly details world building just think oh that sounds suddenly comes to you that sounds quite good put that in and then you have readers ask you about it later by which point you've moved on to four mm. books down the line <coughs> and you've personally I, d- I don't reread my stuff like some readers reread my stuff you know by the time I've published a book I've read it four times I'm on to the next thing you know m- much as I might be proud of something that's not what drives me anymore it's the next creative idea and yet you've got people who revisit that book and they'll know it better better than I will so those sort of things, they want to. They invest themselves in the world. They put so much time and effort into it. They want to know all those minutiae. So I think, yeah, with, with gaming, because you have that whole idea of content, and even with DVDs, it's always the, the extras and things. Particularly, you think what um, Peter Jackson did with all of his movies. It's it's all the maps and everything. It's just putting as much detail as possible. And I think people who love something just want as much of it as they can get. Getting on to the subject of your particular works, we touched on sagas in the new section. Mm-hmm. Um, you both have written very long saga-esque works how does that change your world building how does that change your approach from book one to book X I think that's a bit chicken and egg I think if I hadn't done the work in world building I couldn't have written that many books in that world Um, I mean it was a role playing game world first and then I did a lot of work in, in prep and in thinking it through and in expanding it beyond the, the original ideas I had set down, that gave me a kind of a logical consistency that meant that, that a lot of the plot just kind of followed logically from what went on. So each book, the necessary consequences, or what effect is that going to have in this world, could be very easily answered because the world was there for me to, to tap, to draw on. I mean, personally, when I pitched Pax Britannia, it's a one-off book, but I based, um, when Abadna started, they had four shared worlds and they said but we're open to ideas for other ones and I mentioned a steampunk idea which is two paragraphs that basically set out what I thought could work and none of that got removed just things got added and the basic premise was that Jules Verne and H.G. Wells weren't writing science fiction they're writing fact and everything so you kind of got a world populated by all these characters and creatures and scientific inventions and you extrapolate from there Um, certainly I didn't have a, a massive well, I, I suppose we sat down and we did create a World Bible because to begin with it was going to be a series that other people contributed to. I was only going to do every other book. And Al Ewing wrote his own trilogy set within the same world and there's been a novella since by David Moore and possibly some more work like that. Um, 
So it, it was meant to be a developed world, but you equally, it's just like gaming sourcebooks again. You leave pockets where there isn't that much detail to give people a chance to do their own and add their own embellishments. Um, but when I started writing the ongoing saga, the thing I had most clearly in mind was that I wanted, I knew where the character started, Ulysses Quicksilver, started at point A, and I knew I wanted to take him, and that was the journey that I thought would be interesting. And then the stories themselves were standalone adventures, but they all continue his story arc. And as I was writing them, I also got to write some short stories linked to the world, and one of those then led to a complete three-book section in sequence, which kind of expanded what I'd had planned anyway, which purely arose out of something like, say, a throwaway idea or something you put in the background that you can then actually, what would happen if this happened? And I just didn't want it to be that classic. It doesn't happen so much now, but the sort of classic um, Star Trek where they press the reset button at the end of every episode. I didn't want that to happen. That was the most important thing. So at the end of... Um, book eight there's quite dramatic things happen in the world and there's a new short story coming out later this year which takes it forward again so people realise that it isn't the same world that it was to begin with mm. both your works seem to struggle within the genre categories by which I mean they're very good books but the the, the kind of boxes they're shoved into they don't really fit uh, Ulysses Quicksilver is not steampunk Shadows of the App series is Sort of fantasy, but it's got more elements to it. It's more, it's deeper than that. Um, how how hindering is the, the the marketing necessity that is genre and genre label, labeling? I'm just interested that you say that Pax Britannia isn't steampunk because I I pitched it as a steampunk. I've been on panels <laughs> where people have said they were very quick to deny that what they wrote was steampunk, and a lot of the time I was agreeing with them. I was on a panel with Kim Newman once um, at FantasyCon. And I agree, his stuff isn't steampunk, but he's a big influence on the creation of Pax Britannia, which I don't know he took that well. So, <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm intrigued. Um, mostly because I, I, when, when I read Ulysses Quicksilver stuff, for example, I, I, it's got more of a superhero action hero okay. feel to it. And it feels like, um, whereas a lot of steampunk stuff has that, steampunk being it is such a... a, a, a Broad and generalisation. Yeah, notoriously hard to pin down what, yeah. what is and isn't steampunk. There's a classic thing if you asked all the people in the room here, definition of steampunk, you'd get that many plus at least one. <laughs> um, I mean, I suppose it mine's unusual in that it isn't set during Victorian times. I've read people say it has to be set during Queen Victoria's reign. It's like, well, technically, in my books, it is Queen Victoria's reign, but it's 1997. Because um, <laughs> you know, because you can. Um, and I suppose. I people who've heard me talk about this before at panels will be sick of it but I think of steampunk as a flavour rather than a genre because within that setting I've written action stories I've written horror stories, I've written science fiction stories but they've all got that certain je ne sais quoi Yeah, I mean, I, I always kind of assumed that Shanders of the Act was steampunk because it had that technology and I mean, it's, it's, it's a secondary world it doesn't have any kind of um, touching base with Victorian uh, Victorian England and in the same way I, I there are people who, who will try to claim anything that has Queen Victoria in it as steampunk, mm. no matter whether it's got the steam or the punk. Uh, there are people who will try and claim H.G. Wells and Jules Verne as steampunk, and I kind of feel that's, that's kind of... No. no. No, not at all. I think... Uh, I agree. I've heard people say the same thing, but that's they, they were weird. writing proto-science fiction. Yeah. And for me, a big part of steampunk, as coined by Jeter and, and like Tim Powers, you've got to have that anachronistic nod. You've got to be aware that this mm. is quirky and... Just the weird retro fit. tech has always been a big, yeah. big, a big part of it for me. But I mean, again, I, I, I remember I wrote an article at one point about the punk of steampunk and the idea that a lot of 
uh, steampunk like uh, the difference engine is actually all about social upheaval and at that point you can although I know he doesn't he really doesn't like the label from that perspective say Perdita Street Station by Mabel is mm. steampunk it's not steampunk in the sort of the pit, pit British Empire and Zeppelin sort of thing but it is absolutely all about the, the social struggle it's got the punk right there so it, it's interesting that you should mention Mabel because a lot of authors and creators when accused of being steampunk deny it yeah. and, <laughs> and it, it, it's weird because you don't get I don't know would you agree with the statement you don't get to to actually put your own work in its genre that's what the readers do yeah I mean I, I kind of think we were talking about Alice in Wonderland we're doing the Humpty Dumpty steampunk is the ultimate Humpty Dumpty word it means whatever people want it to mean yeah and certainly when you, you might have an intention but once once a work is out there, whatever it might be, it's other people interpret it. I mean, there's been recent talk about Jaws' 40th anniversary and what is Jaws actually about. And I think Spielberg said it's just about a shark. But there's people who try to make it out to be all sorts of things. Sometimes a shark is just a shark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, so I, I think you've got a point, yeah. There, there's another famous... Po- there's a, well, this is not a famous podcast, but there is a famous podcast of a famous movie critic who will tell you that um, ja- Jaws is all about... Um, fidelity and divorce and that sort of thing. He's talking nonsense, but that's the job of a critic. Um, Was he married uh, to the shark? I missed that subplot. <laughs> in the in in the book, uh, Joel, yes. oh, right. um, yes. he um, he he betrays his, yeah. betrays his wife um, for the shark. No, no, he, 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 runs, he runs off and has an affair, and he dies. The shark eats him. In the in the movie. He doesn't. That subplot doesn't happen. He is loyal to his wife, and he wins. And the shark doesn't. He? So it's a shark of divine retribution. Exactly. <laughs> it's a love shark. Uh, love shark, baby. <laughs> um, love shark, baby. Have you gone a As a, as a, have you listened to the show? Uh, as, as a, as a critical, as a critical concept, uh, I think it's complete nonsense. But I think it's a really nice kind of idea. Um, this talk about genre and where the reader identifies it was sort of touched on in one of the panels at Edgelit today. Um, they talked today about um, is genre and literary fiction closer than ever before, uh, and they they kind of came with a bit of a no. But what they said is that it's the publishers who pigeonhole. Yeah. Whether you you are genre or commercial mainstream, and if you're genre, which genre you're going to be pigeonholed into? And they rebrand things. Um, Harry Potter is now classed as YA, whereas when he when J.K. started writing it, there wasn't that brand, or certainly not as it's understood now. Yeah. And yet, equally, you have this bizarre idea of books about teenagers are primarily read by I think the largest largest demographics thirty something women. Um, And and it's it's the denial as well that Harry Potter is fantasy. Oh no, it's not. No, it's just a kids' book. There was a great quote, wasn't there, from or a letter from Terry Pratchett about that, saying, "You know, didn't she notice when, with all the wizards and unicorns, something yeah. along the lines of that?" It's it's the dragons, dear. The dragons, I believe, was part yeah. of the 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 because it was slightly condescending. I, I, I do find it movie. funny when, just personal opinion, when people get embarrassed at labels that are put on things. And I agree, a lot of the time it is just a label and it helps market it. But in many ways, that's no bad thing. I mean, at the end, they were trying to sell books. Um, I, I think it's. It's making sure that you're sort of known possibly beyond that label. The fact that you mentioned, I say, probably now I'm most well known for my steampunk novels and my fighting fantasy game books. And it's different enough that, that hopefully you sort of, people are open to, to other ideas and suggestions. We, we kind of glanced upon the topic of the event that we're at. So, Edgelet 
Adrian, Yay. how have you find, found the event? Oh, it's been great fun. I've done uh, a paddle on Grimdark, and whether it is and what is it and why. Uh, I did two-thirds of a workshop on world building before we ran out of time. And then I did another panel on sci-fi, which I was drafted in at five minutes' notice because uh, someone else dropped up. Uh, and how have you found everything else around the event? Hot. It's been really hot. <laughs> uh, it's apart hot. From that, no, it's, it's, it's been grand. And yeah, there are, there are plenty of people around here that I haven't seen in a long time. It's been really fun catching up. Is this your first one of these? Because this is the fourth Edge Live. You've been to this I've before? I've been to the first two I missed last year because they had, you know, world sci-fi was on and there were just too much stuff. The long con. Uh, uh, but I, before Age <laughs> Lit, I was at Alt Fiction, which kind of was its precursor for at least two years, I think. Um, I, I did an Alt Fiction, and I think this is my third Edge Lit. Um, so it's just got that really friendly kind of atmosphere. I think it's one of my it's one of my favourite conventions, and they send me to a lot of these things. As long suffering listeners who've listened to many pre records <laughs> will, will realise, it's like where is he now? It's um, somewhere else. Um, Jonathan, how, have you, how has your edge lit been? Well, it's been very different from Adrian's because I was kind of sat behind a table. Because um, I'm basically here with my new anthology, my first editing gig, Shark Punk, as we mentioned. I mentioned yours earlier. Just threw that one in. Um, but we sponsored a panel, the publisher Snowbooks, on short and sweet about short story writing and selling into that market. So I've kind of been here with that sort of hat on. But um, I've heard so much about it. Just every year, the buzz has been so good, and I thought I'd love to come along. So again, I came to Art Fiction um, eight years ago. It was when my first Pack Potato novel came out, and I came to promote that. And I'd not been since, and just thought I've really got to make sure I can make it this time. So, it's similar to Adrian, although I've not had the chance to see many panels other than the short story one, it's any opportunity like this, because we're writers, we sit behind a desk in our own little world, and it's great to come out and meet like-minded people where you, you have a certain set of things that are given as read. It's not like when you go to those um, parties with... Because I've got children now, so with parents... Um, of other children in my son's class. I guess, what do you do? Oh, yeah, yeah, when well, I write, have you been published? Yes, what sort of thing do you write? And you mention, oh, like kids' books, and it's just, and you kind of, or, or you mention, oh, I write game books. Well, what's that? Is that like Dungeons and Dragons? And it's all these old cliches get classed out, because people don't know any better. It's not, I don't want to be too dismissive of that, but it's just <laughs> great to meet people, and you just have the same um, interest, and you can geek out about things and not feel embarrassed, and catch up with other people. And there's an element of networking involved as well. Yeah, it, it feels like a very sort of SF fantasy cult writers sort of business yeah. hotel get-together type thing. I should also say it's great to meet people who I've only met on Facebook. Mm. And they come up and say, I'm so-and-so, and you can now put a face to the name. I and I can say to my wife, they are real people. They are my friends. <laughs> I think there is a certain sort of event, and this is definitely one which can be described as Geek CPD. Well, you know, uh, it's, it's that kind of training course for geeks where you turn up. Uh, Nine Worlds is another good example, though Nine Worlds is much more diverse. Um, and I think one of the things that Nine Worlds suffers from is the fact that there is so much to do that even if you're as greedy as I am, I am famously greedy, um, I, I, I run around these things trying to learn as much as I can and trying to cram as many things into my brain as I can. Um, at this, this is a kind of a, a manageable banquet. There is there is there is one one thing which is books. I can run around. I can spend the day filling my brain for the book stuff. Nine worlds. There's too many flavors. Uh, I occasionally get very tired very quickly. I think nine worlds. This feels like a very different. It's got a very different feel to nine worlds. This has actually got a very different feel to most of the other um, events and cons that we've gone to so far this this year. 
The other thing I have to say about this, the organisation of it, is because I've been in the dealer's room, there's always the danger that they have such good workshops going on all day with proper published writers. Um, and <laughs> That sounds dismissive. I'm just thinking of all this classic case where you read about these creative writing courses and they're run by people who've never had anything published in their lives. That's so proper published authors who are current, um, successful, and very willing to share their experience and knowledge. Um, or lack of sense. <laughs> or just saying, I just got lucky. Yeah. But with people to come along. So obviously that takes people away from the dealer's room, but there are gaps timetabled into the schedule. Mm-hmm. So even when, we know it's been quiet because there's been a talk on, but then you suddenly get an influx of people, which has still made it worthwhile. Adrian, you were at the Long Con last year. Which yes, is the, the Week of Geek. Well, the Week of Geek. How, how does that sort of intensity compare to something like Edge Lit, which is one day in Derby? Yeah, well, that, that, I mean, that was... Once we'd done Nine Worlds, and then we'd done the various stuff in the week... In the intervening week, like fantasy in the court and that sort of thing, and then the actual, you know, the long con three, the, the world sci-fi. At the end of that, it was the first time I got out of a con. I thought, I really want to go home now. <laughs> con fatigue. Just, yeah, just I was completely wiped out. I, um, I, I had a very similar experience. Though I was lucky enough to actually go back to Manchester, recover, then come back. Also, I, I also in both situations left with a hangover. <laughs> uh, for which I can blame Gollants mostly, um, and Gollants also having a Gollants fest. Yes. Uh, yeah, I saw. I, I saw that. And it's in growing, the isn't it? Yeah. Right. So, so we are slowly but surely heading towards the end of time. And <laughs> still got, you've still got a few more minutes. Can I can I tell my my Easter con story? So about talking about comforting. My very first Easter con, which was the one that George R. R. Martin was in a few years ago, and it was my first large convention I did and it was in a hotel with no windows and by the third day I was going slightly out of my mind mm. and there was one guy cosplaying he was cosplaying a Klingon so I was sitting in the bar staring across the room at the Klingon I was like does anybody else see a Klingon over there or is it just me <laughs> yeah that that can be a problematic thing I mean, Glasgow last week was good because they had actual windows this is good because it's got actual windows you can get sort of very in the bubble of, mm. of calm. You lose all track of time. Yeah, it's lovely to be at a convention where there aren't many cosplayers or any cosplayers at all. And I love cosplayers; I, I think they're it. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, they add spice. But it's interesting to be at when it's just about books. For some reason, no one, no one really wants to cosplay specifically novel characters. But that's because it's not a visual medium, I suppose. Mm. Well, it, there's pictures in your head. Yeah, but that's a that's a different thing. But that'd be hilarious, actually, if like five people turned up as the same character. Say they all turn up as Stannis Baratheon, but from the books. So it's their own oh, right. interpretation. Yeah. Um, so so they end up having a fight because it's like I'm Stannis, no, I'm Stannis. I'm the TV Stannis. <laughs> well, you don't count. Uh, it, would be, it would just be chaos. Um, actually, while we have an audience, hello, audience. Um, do, do, you, do you have any do you want to grab the microphone as I say high technology here um, so um, how have you found Edge Lit brilliant it's my second year and I won three tickets to come next year oh. so I'm very very happy so what was your best session of the day what did you get most out of um, I enjoyed the workshop um, or for people pitching new novels okay 
Um, that was very, very good. In I like the way that Edge that you get to talk to the writers and they kind of peel back the curtain for you, so you get to see behind the scenes how you get an agent, how you deal with publishers, what goes on between authors, and that sort of thing. I found that really, really interesting because it can seem really difficult to break into, and Edgelit kind of destroys that uh, and makes it makes it actually something that we could achieve as yeah. fans and want to be writers. Do you want to say what your best bit of the today was? Your favourite session? It's, it's just been emphasised fairly well for me, thank you. But um, yeah, it's it's noticing, it's humanising the authors almost a little yeah. bit. It's, it sometimes seems a little daunting getting into the things. Oh no, I'm just a tiny little person doing doing nothing, writing. Sometimes then you you meet the authors and they're pretty much the same feeling <laughs> from them, um, and and they're all lovely. And it's it's just. It makes you feel like you want him. They're all very supportive and encouraging. It's it's, it's really wonderful. Uh, I think it's really interesting um, that you bring the space probe closer to them. <laughs> 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 um, it's really interesting um, having a con that feels really friendly to people who are fans of the books, fans of the authors, and also who are writing their own things, want to get their own things out there. It's a really interesting, quite nice mix of people. I've heard a lot of very interesting, friendly conversations where people have just shared a table, started chatting about why are you here today. And it just feels that as long as you're interested in kind of genre books, yeah, there's a slot for you at Edgelit. Come along and enjoy it. Um, yeah, I, but I think Ed and I, between us, have done kind of most of, certainly this afternoon's workshops um, and the one I really enjoyed was the one, uh, I think enjoyed is probably the wrong word, I think the one that had a lot of information in it, uh, was the one about book contracts. Um, and it was a guy uh, who works for Gallants um, who took us through what's in a book contract in the space of an hour. Uh, there was an awful lot of information. Um, I think a lot of it you'd never find from just like trying to find that on the internet or read mm, it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of sort of inside knowledge of this is the stuff we put in and this is what it says and this is why. And by the way, if you're signing one of these, don't let them put this bit in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so Unless it took a land's contract. And we keep the merchandising rights. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that was really interesting. But yeah, the, the, the access to sort of industry insiders like that and also authors like yourselves and like the other authors that we've been speaking to and who've given the workshops, sort of just giving up their time to say what they've learned by being in the industry. I think, I think for me, uh, the dialogue... Uh, workshop with MR Carey um, and I do realise that our uh, Del who is quite frequently on the show will probably try and kill me at this <laughs> point because she's a massive MR Carey fan um, but he was amazing he he got to the nub of it straight away he, he went through various various dialogue exercises and my goodness my, that man knows how to use the word fuck quite well um, <laughs> So uh, we're, we're coming towards the end of the show, um, to, to everybody's relief. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to use this opportunity to, to ask our, our wonderful guests, uh, Jonathan Green and Adrian Tchaikovsky, to pitch to you, gentle listener, their works and why they, why, why they should be reading. Oh, uh, well, all right, I'm going to pitch Guns of the Dawn, which is my fancy standalone out earlier this year. It's Pride and Prejudice meets Sharp, uh, or as described by a friend of mine, Pride and Extreme Prejudice. Ooh. Cool. Um, goodness. Wait, uh, I suppose, can I mention you are the hero? 
Why not? I, I know it's a very niche thing, but it's um, my history of fighting fantasy game books. So if that means anything to you, if you love them as a child, hope, well, from reading all the other reviews, you'll love the book. It's just a passion of mine because it's how I started writing. Uh, my first, I, I loved them when I was age 10 and it really set me on the path to becoming an author. My first published book was a fighting fantasy game book and it just so happened my 50th published book was the history of fighting fantasy game books. <laughs> so if you're a fan, check it out. It's one of the running gags on the show that we actually haven't had for a while. Um, is the um, do you tend to salute your troops or do you sever the Gong Chong's proboscis? Hey, turn to page four hundred, <laughs> and it's like hmm, page four hundred means I win. Um, <laughs> I, I'm twelve and I don't know what a proboscis is, um, but I, I'm going to turn to page four hundred anyway. Uh, Who I win? Um, Important and, life lessons. And of all the amazing things to happen on the show, floor manager has just waved his arms uh, at us which means we're going to have to flee the fact we have a floor manager is frankly astounding that is astounding (laughs) Uh, it's it's nice to be let out of the shed that we normally produce these shows this is actually slightly cooler than the usual studio (laughs) it's slightly how hot the usual studio is so um, so, some some very quick adverts Uh, the station is found. you can find Fab Radio International on fabradiointernational.com you should listen to Paddy O'Hare's Anything That Rocks because it's amazing it really is you should of course um, via via either the Starburst Magazine website or via the Fab Radio International website listen to the Starburst Magazine editorial show uh, called the Starburst Magazine podcast Um, Mike, Shona and occasionally Graham but mostly Mike and mostly Martin talk about all the movies they're really good Um, also Game Face rather good and you can find us on Twitter you can find us on Facebook we are Fab Radio Int or we are Radio Bookworm for this specific show feel free to send us your hate mail across the world 24 hours a day So, um, that's been the show. So, um, we've been edgelit. So, it's goodbye, audience. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> they unlock the doors now. You can go. <laughs> um, so, it's goodbye from me, Ed Fortune. And, well, thank you for having me. It's goodbye from me, Jonathan Green, I guess. And it's goodbye from me, Adrian Tchaikovsky. The Bookworm is a truly outrageous production for Fab Radio International and Starburst magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune with Adrian Tchaikovsky and Jonathan Green. Produced by A.L. Johnson. Yeah.